0: It's all-
1: Bye.
2: Greatest living band, right? Maybe. Greatest living MIDI track. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Uh, Alright, so you're catching the tail end of the Maximum Summer Show here on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Living Writers is up next. Uh, I'm Dustin. I'm Brian. And uh, we've just been doing the thing we've been doing for the last couple weeks, which is uh, playing a bunch of 90s indie rock, which, you know, isn't that really the spirit of summer? Yeah, nostalgia, man. Exactly. So here's what you've been hearing. Uh, Dinosaur Jr. with The Wagon. Before that, Doxy, a band from my hometown, uh, uh, whose uh, drummer was my, uh, my pri- private drum instructor in sixth grade. Cool. I also had a huge crush on her younger sister, who was my age. <laughs> anyway, that, and that's what got me into indie rock, just like everything else. Uh, it's because of a girl. But uh, anyway, uh, PC ripoff is the title of the track. Uh, before that, Polvo with Can I Ride. Before that, X-ray Specs by request with I'm a Poser. Before that, uh, Built to Spill caustic resin. It's I, I think it's both bands together as one big band. It's a heavy um, track. Yeah, heavy track uh, called uh, One Thing. And uh, that's where that's where our last we last spoke. Uh, I'm gonna play one more track. We're gonna play the Amps yeah so we should totally get back together yep yeah, it's you know it's the next reunion that's bound to happen uh track's called tip city and so yeah stay tuned to uh to wcbn all day all night listen to living writers listen to my punk show later it's gonna be all anti-american because that's awesome yeah because yeah. it's because like the power. fourth weekend it's, yeah nah, whatever anyway uh stay tuned
0: Visit us at www.wcbn.org
2: and listen to us via streaming mp3 or QuickTime.
1: Have you been looking for volunteer projects near you? Call 1-800-VOLUNTEER or click on 1-800-VOLUNTEER.org.
3: Good afternoon. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Carlos Ruiz Zafon. Uh, he's in town with his latest novel, The Angel's Game. Welcome, Carlos. Hello. Thanks for coming here to Ann Arbor. Thank and,
4: you for having me. And
3: being here at WCBN in the Thank you. Studio. Pleasure. Pleasure
4: to be here. <laughs>
3: uh, well, um, to start us off, uh, I will read Carlos's uh, Biography in the back of of the book. He's as I said, he's here. Um, he's in the U.S. touring for The Angel's Game, um, a novel. Um, his his uh, his one that's actually a prequel to his his huge, phenomenally successful book, The Shadow of the Wind. Um, All right. So, Carlos Ruiz Zafon, author of The Shadow of the Wind and other novels, is one of the world's most read and best-loved writers. His work has been translated into more than 40 languages and published around the world, garnering numerous international prizes and reaching millions of readers. He divides his time between Barcelona and Los Angeles. Again, welcome, Carlos. Thank you. And now we can fill in maybe a bit more of your... Biography. Here. Yeah,
4: my glorious biography. <laughs> well, the, my, my yeah, I'll give you the short version without the gory details. Oh,
3: come on, let's get Yeah, gothic. get
4: glad like, gothic. I'll, we'll save that for later. Uh, I was born and raised in Barcelona, in Spain, and, and I lived there until I was uh, 20, 20, 26 years old from from that moment on. I, I just started to travel. I ended up living in California for, for a few years. And nowadays, um, I'm living, I don't really know where the, the book says that I'm dividing my time between Barcelona and Los Angeles, and but I'm not sure that's true. Uh, I really don't know. I spend time in different places, so I'm constantly moving around And it right now. Like
3: Berlin's in the mix, and too. Berlin, and
4: Paris, different places in Europe. I also spend time here in the United States. So I'm I'm, I'm keeping mobile at the moment. So I, I hope in the future that I can stay put in one place because it's starting to get confusing. But right now I'm moving all around. And I've always been a writer, a working writer. As I published my first novel in 1992. And uh, since then, I've been I've been earning my living writing. Uh, for for a short time, uh, I work also as a screenwriter. Uh, something I don't do anymore, thank God. You know, I, I think I bought my my own freedom back, like the slaves that bought their freedom, so to concentrate on my own personal work, my books. And and that's it. That's what I do. I'm just uh, just a working writer.
3: And um, well, well, let's talk about that. Like, what
4: does working writer mean to you? To me, working writer is. Somebody... It seems like it's
3: changed throughout, like the different. When you were a screenwriter, it was.
4: Yeah, well, different... the, the screenwriting thing was something that I did for a few years uh, because naively I thought at the time I had published my first novel, and I thought that maybe I could do some kind of mercenary writing on the side, kind of anonymous, that would. Allow me to not to compromise my own fiction; that that would buy me the freedom to write the books I wanted to write, because I would not be compromised in trying to write stuff that I that I would write just for commercial reasons or things like that. And I thought, you know, I could do that on another field, which is not my personal work, is work for hire or something on the side. And that was my idea. It turned out that that was not such a good idea, and. Uh,
3: but you were good at it, nonetheless, Carlos, like is when you were in because a lot of people go to l a with mm-hmm. with just the the, the goal to be,
4: to break Yeah, into I guess Los Angeles is a magnet for people who want to reinvent their lives or want to make it or want to, you know, it's the, the thing about film, about any creative endeavor is that many people are called and very few are chosen. It's kind of a cruel thing. You you want to give your life to something, to, to the movies, to music, to literature, whatever that is, to art, and these tend to be kind of cruel mistresses and that don't necessarily love you back, even though you may love of them. And a lot of people are disappointed or a lot of people destroy their lives or get lost in some kind of limbo trying to, to reach for the dream that never really comes. And, uh, and then there's a lot of drama and tragedy sometimes, and when you spend some time in Los Angeles, you see that. A lot of talented people who are working hard and trying to, trying to get somewhere, and it's just not possible. And you know the chips are again are stuck against you, and, and it's a complicated thing. So, but you were, but yet you were able to do. I that was so able to, to work for a while, although I wouldn't I wouldn't consider my 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 experience successful in the sense. I thought that one of the things I, I've learned about the screenwriting and the film business is that it's an extremely social environment, and. One thing is the work you do, but then another thing that it's even as important is how you socially manage that and how you interact socially with, with the particularities of the business. And and you need to have a special discipline to that and, and be practical and to and to know how to and I have a problem which which is that sooner or later I end up saying things that I should not say. And I I mess up politically. I say things that you know that are supposedly known. Everybody, even if everybody knows they're true, or supposedly they're unspoken truths. And one of, one of the things about interesting things about the film business is that sometimes you get the impression that that everybody lies about everything. But even about things that apparently are inconsequential, it's like it's. I don't know, it may be, it's pouring out there, it's the storm of a century, and then everybody's saying, wow, it's such a beautiful sunny day, and say, it's not. What's 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 the point of it doesn't matter you can say it's raining it's okay it, there's I, I understand lying about some things you see the motivation you're lying about something there are big interests there but sometimes there are all these lies about everything is it have you have to lie about everything all the time it's very tiring you know to live constantly under this web of lies about everything and 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 sooner or later you mess up and you say things you shouldn't be saying or, or you you break the the, the protocol or things like that. And and I always knew that I, I don't know I I didn't have I think it requires a special talent to to survive and to, to navigate in, in that kind of environment. And I just didn't have it. I wish I had, but I didn't have it. And I think
3: uh, in the Angels game you actually make some um, you take some sort of jabs at the industry or some of the Films in general, even though th- your work itself is very visually driven. Like it, very- is, it is.
4: I, I don't have any trouble. You know, I love films. I think the medium of film is fantastic itself and I think that film and, and TV it's filled with, with extraordinary talented people trying to do and creating sometimes extraordinary work. But if there's something about the business environment of the entertainment industry that for some reason attend to to, to go in that model. I don't know. Probably there's a good reason for it. Otherwise, if there would be a more efficient way to run it, that would be the case, but it's not right.
3: But it's interesting because it also reminds me of uh, the the underworld, the city's underworld of Barcelona that you actually well, and, write about. And, and ways, in many ways, yeah. Century. One
4: of the things I did is in the Angels Game, we have the story about this writer in the 1920s in Barcelona who writes uh, under a pen name. This kind of uh, serials, this penny dreadful, gothic adventures called the City of the Damned, and he's writing for a couple of pirate publishers who are exploiting him, and he's essentially burning his youth and his health writing these books.
3: So were you feeling this way I, 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 felt I, I
4: took elements <laughs> elements from my experiences as a screenwriter because right. I, my experience in publishing and writing books has, has nothing of that. I've been able, luckily, to, to all the novels I've published, all the books I've written, where what I wanted to do at the time, the, 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 I take full responsibility for, that, for them. But I, I wanted to give him this kind of when, when some of the writers are under pressure that you are doing work for hire, that you have to write for other people where other people want you to write, I took some from my experiences as a screenwriter, which I think could be connected to that, and I gave it to the character. So in many ways, even though in that case it, it, it's focused on books, in many ways this is writing this kind of anonymous serials, kind of gothic over-the-top grand guignol things. And a lot of that, a lot of the emotions he's feeling, a lot of the contradictions, a lot of the conflicts going on in his life, all come from my experiences as a screenwriter.
3: And and literally in some ways selling your soul to and in the Angels game there's there's quite there's the boss and who's
4: who's like yes, almost a figure kind, of yeah there's this mysterious uh, guy like the devil a, or <laughs> it is it, a mysterious polisher when the, when this writer David Martin he uh, he's at some point he thinks he's he's losing everything he's he's had a very complicated life he loses his father he has one of these Dickensian childhoods in which he loses his father to the political violence of the early 20th century in Barcelona, then his mother abandons him. And he he has to he, he grows up in, in, in extreme circumstances. And at some point, he becomes a writer, and he has this man who is his mentor, who is a famous writer, who helps him. But there's also something, some secret hi, hidden inside this relationship that he won't find out until later. But at some point in his life, he feels that he's at the end of his rope, that he's desperate, that the world has betrayed him. And at this, at this point, this mysterious character, this publisher from Paris, Andreas Corelli, Appears in his life and offers him a fortune to write a book unlike any other that has ever existed. A book that is going to alter the way people believe, even the things they believe in. A book that essentially could become the foundation of a new religion. And he, uh, at the moment when he thinks he's going to die, where he's desperate, he uh, he's even, be- even literally, his yes, health he, is his failing. Health his is days failing. Are He numbered. thinks he's going to die. He thinks that everybody has deserted him. He feels that the world has betrayed him. He's full of spite and resentment and fear, so he desperate accepts this Faustian bargain, although he suspects that the motives of this character, this mysterious polisher from Paris, are far from clean. And, and he takes this offer he cannot refuse in many ways. And of course, as soon as he does, he realizes that he's made a huge mistake. So he is then going to be pulled into some kind of labyrinth of murder intrigue, obsession, in which he's going to try to escape from this. but. Uh, things get more and more complicated, and he gets pulled down this rabbit hole, this labyrinth of mystery that is going to be very sinister, and he's and everybody around him is going to be pulled into, so, so into how, it as well.
3: How, when you're writing the first draft of this, Carlos, how are you keeping track of all all these these threads, these different lines that you're sort of throwing out in in these pieces? How well, can you walk I, us I, through I, a
4: bit of that? Yes, I, I think that the way I work, and you know, I, I tend to write this this novels that have a, in terms of a structure are complicated. They have many characters, many things, many plot lines. They're very plot-driven. Many things happen. There are many subplots. So what I try to do is, even before I start, I think that you have to approach it sometimes as if it were some kind of battle, like a military strategy. And what you do in a battle is that you, you show up there prepared with a strategy, but the first thing you do about the strategy is that you have to react to whatever is going to happen. So you have to change it as it goes. So you have an original plan and you have to change it. What I do is I try to, I think I, I, for the kind of fiction I write, I need to know what I'm doing. I cannot, I think there's some kind of fiction in which, for instance, the reader explores it as, as some kind of, a, um, even as a reader of his or her own work, in which you're, you're just writing down things that come from inside of you. You don't really know where they're coming from. And then later on, you try to go back and find some form to that. And
3: shape it. And, and, and
4: you're exploring a, a mood or a feeling, or but that's a kind of fiction. That's not what I'm trying to do. I think what I'm trying to do is take the reader on a journey. And, and and then I, I I need to know what I'm doing and I need to be prepared I need to know where the journey starts where it ends and and where are all the stops and all the all the complications and all the layers and the different meanings and all the different in the structure and, and this thing so before I start working I have all these things pretty Pretty clear in my mind. Do you
3: map them out? How... I
4: do. I do map them out. They create very different lists of elements and, and different layers in the story. But then at some point, as a star working, what you realize is that no matter how de- detailed your outlines may be, what you find out is that it's when you realize things that you find the real problems and the structure, or every moment, every beat, every scene, every look, every image requires different layers of elaboration. And in there, you find new challenges, new problems and these new problems imply new solutions that you could not foresee before. So then you have to react to that and then you get new ideas. New scenes. And and new, new scenes, scenes or different ways of approaching things or building things or constructing things, a new perspective. So this creates also ripple effects in all directions because when you start changing things you have to change more things. So essentially what I do is I rewrite everything to death. And it's rather than writing just one first draft and then going back, I'm, I'm always working on a draft that is a work in progress. So I'm constantly rewriting that, and when I'm done, I'm done, and it's locked. And then nobody touches a comma.
3: Let's take a short break, sure. and we'll be back. Um, you've got living writers on WCBN-FM um, today, Carlos Ruiz Zafon, his novel, The Angels Game. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, you've got living writers. Today on the program, Carlos Ruiz Zafon and his novel, The Angels Game. I'm T. Hetzel. And you this, you know, Carlos's name might be familiar to you um, as it is around the world. Basically, he had um, a huge success with his his um, his first novel The Shadow of the Wind and I. there's an asterisk there because you've been writing novels um, that were classified yeah, actually, as young Shadow adult The Shadow of the Wind is right? the,
4: the first novel translated into English but it's oh. my fifth novel and before Shadow of the Wind, I published four other books.
3: And and that was the Fog Trilogy, right? Yes, with the, the, first, the first three
4: of these books, the first of one is finally, they were not translated into English because for many years they were trapped in this kind of mysterious legal battle between publishers, some kind of bleak housing intrigue that was never ending. <laughs> finally, all that got solved and, and, and the, the rights could be sold. So now they're going to be published worldwide and they're going to be start starting to be published here in the United States by a Little Brown next year, and the first one of them is, is called The Prince of Mist, which was the very first novel I published in 1992. And this was a novel that originally was published or got an award for young adult fiction. What does mean? I, I never knew what young adult means. I remember when I was a young adult, I would read anything, but but what had the label of young adult. And I think a lot of young readers want to read, just not not something that seems to condescend to them. But sometimes there are these collections or these labels, or at least it's it's helpful to put things in different parts of the bookstore. What does it mean? I don't know. I mean, it was was just writing books. And these were books of mystery, of adventure, of romance. And they appealed to young people, and they appealed to older readers as well. I wrote three of these novels, and then I wrote a fourth novel called Marina, which in many ways was a hybrid. And I think it's when I realized that I needed to white the canvas, that that kind of young adult uh, label, which I always felt it was a fake, that I was faking it, trying to pass for something I was not, re- was kind of containing me. And and at the time, I started working on the very first novel that, to me, was going to have no labels, no limitations, was going to be exactly what I wanted to do, and that was uh, Shadow of the Wind. And that eventually became the first novel to be published into English. So,
3: but when you began writing Carlos, you didn't have the intention of writing a story that you felt would be um, more aimed at younger audiences. So, how were you, oh. at what, like, how, so, where is it that you were, I don't know, I don't need to sound cheesy here, but growing as a writer in some ways so that you began to feel contained? Well, you're by it, you're always
4: growing as a writer. I think what happened is because I was a working writer, and when The Prince of Mess, this first novel became published in Spain originally and it became pretty successful, I think because I was a working writer and because the book was successful and I was making a living writing books uh, I became very conservative and very cautious and you know how hard it is to make a living as a writer. So you so worked
3: you, within that world so again. So
4: you, you see, what well, I'm going to jump from a train that, that is already going somewhere and of course you become concerned about that and you become concerned about running away from, from, from a success you've found and and I think because of that, it, I cannot blame anybody. I myself put in, put myself in the position in which I continue writing these yo- supposedly young adult novels, which I never felt they were entirely young adult. I was constantly thinking, out, the, somebody's going to bang in my door at 3 o'clock in the morning and say, You freeze, hands up, you, I'm going to be exposed as a non young adult writer because I always thought that I was faking it. I was just trying, I wasn't writing and thinking of young people. I was Trying to write the best stories I could, and they had mystery, they had adventure, so young readers liked them.
3: Were they similar, Carlos, to how the characters in 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 both *The Shadow of the Wind* and *The Angel's Game*? Yeah, we, I, think we have they, younger. I, think, I think they start as young people. Yeah,
4: uh, maybe with, with younger people, with young. But but I think they were similar. They came from the same world, and uh, they had the same flavor. They had this kind of gothic stylization that is common to everything I write. And uh, they were part of it. And of course, as you grow as a writer, I think as 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 you advance, as you write new books, you learn many things. You learn from your mistakes. You, you evolve, and you learn to, to, to your your skill uh, expands, and uh, and you're able to do more and to achieve things that perhaps a few years before you didn't really know how to realize. So,
3: so are you able to actually articulate what those? Those things were when you made the like the promise to yourself to 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 write the shadow of the
4: wind yeah, I think at the time uh, when I started working on Shadow of the Wind what happened uh, it was some kind of crossroads in my life. I realized that I had been for for quite a few years writing books that were not exactly all I wanted that I had put on my on myself limitations because of this success I had found in that genre but what was missing then um uh, was I just matter, I would say, of a scope or freedom or, or, or not necessarily, you know, be able to write whatever I wanted, include all the issues, all the themes, all the tones I wanted, and not having to be concerned if this would be appropriate right. for young adults. And us say, you know, yeah. maybe or maybe not, I don't care. It's just appropriate for readers. I'm, and what I always wanted to do and what I, I write for people who like to read, period, Without any labels, and and for all sorts of people who like to read, there are people who are young, who are old, people who read only literary fiction, people who read thrillers, people who ra- read science fiction, people who wouldn't be caught dead reading science fiction, people who read nonfiction or poetry. Doesn't matter if you like to read. I write for that kind of people, and try to write books that for the appeal. story, the story, for the story is story, primary, the characters, the language, mm-hmm. the, the 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 atmosphere, everything for the texture of the language of the style of the story, the adventure, the fun. What I'm trying to write is things that are fun to read, that that impact you, that engage you, that seduce you, that get inside your brain and your heart and move you and stay with you after you close the book. So, just for readers, you know, people who love books, and there are all sorts of different books and all sorts of different readers, and I write from them all. When I was writing young adult fiction or so-called young adult fiction, I felt that I was putting myself some kind of limitations or some kind of you know, even pull the brake here because you think you shouldn't go in that direction or,
3: or don't expose that part of human or, nature yeah or, or, or
4: things that are maybe there are some elements so although i'm very fond of these books i wrote back then and they're my creatures and, and i can see my evolution through them at some point i realized that that i wanted to to be more free to do whatever i wanted and it also was the time when i had been working as a screenwriter for a few years and i was kind of fed up i felt that i had gone down the wrong road that that I, that I had messed up my life and I felt you know I've been been a working writer for, for many years now but I've never give given myself the chance what I really want to do and see, for once in my lifetime I think I I've earned the right I I bought myself, you know, the time to, to work on something without thinking of anybody. So were you able
3: to take like time off from the screenwriting and and just focus on the daily writing? At the time
4: I was, I was working on a a script for a producer and I asked him, please fire me. And he, he (laughs) said, why? say, why? Because you're going to go and write one of your books. And I say, yes, please fire me. You're going to (laughs) fire me sooner or later. You know it. And I know it fire me now and we can save each other a lot of aggravation and we stay friends. Graciously, he fired me and we stay friends to this day. So it was a Hollywood ending, a nice Hollywood sweet happy ending in which he fired me, and so I was able to go work and Shadow of the Wind.
3: And so, th- so that was you were in Hollywood, probably California, and then you made yes. the move the, back to Barcelona Not to do really. the writing. I st- or I, stay,
4: I stayed in Los Angeles for a while because I had a home there, I had a life there, I had a many friends, and I spent there. And, and California became home to me.
3: And did it make it easier to, to write in the imaginary, uh, like historic time of Barcelona for the for um, the Angels game, the 1920s and 30s, because um, it takes place in Barcelona in yes. that time period. Did, was that something that maybe helped to to keep th- it separate? I think sometimes
4: distance allows you... I think I can write about Barcelona wherever I am because I was born there. I was raised there. And... Uh, and and I, that's my hometown. I'm a product of the city, so it, it's it's inside of me wherever I go. So I could go to Calcutta and I and to me, I have this kind of I always joking. I have like DVD memory, like HD DVD memory. Okay. So I have the entire place inside of my mind, and 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 I can I can write about it wherever I am because it's 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 part of me. And but I think that sometimes when you put distance with a place, with your hometown, with the place you were born and raised. Um, this this allows you to, to to have some perspective, and I think it allows you to understand much better your relationship to that place, exactly why you react to it in a certain way. I think that is why quite often a lot of works that, are, that we deem emblematic of a place or a time have been written from a distance, because I think you may then go back, and then when you go back to that place, you see it differently, you see it in a more objective way. I think it's like if you're looking at your hand, you put your hand in front of your face, you don't even know what that is. It's so close, if, if you move it away, you start seeing the lines in your hand, your fingers, the the outline of it, and you know what it is, it's a hand, you understand, and then you realize it's part of your body, it's attached to your arm, it's attached to your body. And I think the same thing happens with the places that we come from, that sometimes I mean, putting some distance allows us to, to, to understand them better, understand ourselves better. And then we are able to go back if we want, and to see in a more, a thing objective light. And when you're writing about a place, or you're using a place uh, as a part of your fiction. I think it's important that you understand it, that you're not blinded by the proximity, that you need to really know what's going on there. So you're able to get to the heart and core of it and, and be able to use the soul of the place.
3: Yes. And we're going to take a short break and we'll be back to hear more from, sure. from Carlos Ruiz Zafon. Um, his novel, The Angel's Game. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got living writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. We'll be back. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Carlos Ruiz Zafon, his novel The Angels Game, on WCBN, FM, and Arbor. Um, I should say that we've, we've, we're talking on the 23rd of June, 2009, and thanks to Alex Belhodge, uh, the intrepid engineer uh, behind glass. Uh, so, so, Carlos, um, I was wondering. Uh, you mentioned, and if you're just joining us, we've we've been having a great conversation about it has been going in in many directions. So we've got lots ahead to talk about. Um, you mentioned Gothic stylization um, for what you do. You said this is just what I do. Whether you're writing something that other people are labeling young adult, or or or, or the the two books that we have in translated into English, The Shadow yeah. of the Wind, uh-huh. The Angel's Game. Um, so what? What does that mean to you when you're uh, you're imagining that like how in your mind when when you're creating, what are you building with that Gothic stylization?
4: Well, the, the Gothic is uh, something that mm, that I can be. It's a wide range of things. So I think it, when we mention the Gothic, some people may visualise a lot of things. I don't know the films of Tim Burton or the Victorian gothics, the Victorian epics from Dickens to Wilkie Collins, to, to to Bram Stoker, and Dracula. Or, there are many things to me I think the gothic to me the way I understand it is a very broad thing and it's a, it's a way of using as the aesthetics of creation in this case literature use imagery use styling uh, in a way to charge everything with meaning in a way in which you're trying to use atmosphere you're trying to use light you try to use everything and in charge it with meaning with a dramatic context and dramatic purpose so you start playing around even with the weather, with light with sound with smell with the clothes with the everything and all these things that may be in regular fiction would be just clothes or light or the weather or it rains it just rains to use all these elements and charge them with extreme stylization and trying to with charge them with meaning to provide them with a dramatic purpose and and of course this this also filter through this kind of very stylized very um Sander's so always playing around with this notion of the vaguely sinister, the Baroque, the complex. And, and, and it comes from many things. I think it comes from many different fields, from many different uh, aesthetics. It, it may go from the 19th century traditional, the, the origins of the Gothic novels, of course, but then it goes through the 20th century to the invention of noir, to to the German expressionists, to many different things that I think Add to 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 the world of what we what what we call the Gothic.
3: It's the way of looking at setting, but also looking at characters. It is. As it's a Gothic way of, of playing
4: at Characters It's a way of trying to create drama that is that works on many different levels. That sometimes uses uh, elements of the maybe of you know, the magical or the supernatural or the perhaps supernatural or and it, it's it's trying to to. to I think intensify the way we look at the world, in which everything may have a meaning, in which a piece of furniture has a character, in which everything is charged and electric and touches. And also it allows us to play with many symbolic elements, with many metaphorical elements. And this, I think, provides uh, a lot of weapons for the writer and literature to to tell the stories in a more complex and a richer way, because Mm -hmm. everything can be used and everything can be charged with meaning. And that this is how I understand the Gothic rather than just, uh, uh, aesthetic bay with sinister people or vampire-looking people. You know, of course, that's part of the Gothic. But but I think it's the Gothic can be found in many things. In literature, we found the great the great American gothics of Joyce Carol Oates, and there is no super necessarily supernatural elements in that, but there is a strong Gothic uh, uh, aesthetic to that. And and if we go to the, the field of film, we find the Gothic, for instance, in, in, in great masterpieces like Blade Runner. Blade Runner is a fantastic gothic or the films of Tim Barton, or many things like that. You know, they, they, these places, and if we go back to, I think Blade Runner is a gay example because the light, the sound, everything, every glance, every object is charged with meaning, with atmosphere, everything is dripping with atmosphere, and the whole thing acquires some kind of almost mythological proportions. All these issues about these people who don't want to die and are trying to find their creator, the whole thing becomes mythic, becomes bigger. And I think this is one of the things that the Gothic allows you to do, this intensifying of the world and trying to create a dramatic context that it's that it's filled with possibilities and they are exciting and, and, and it can be frightening and and, 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 and always extremely and beautiful. And cruel to, as to well. Cruel yeah. and, and beautiful It'll It'll even be beautiful. In, 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 in its darkness yes. in its contrast of shadow and light in, in the profound darkness that it can. And I think it allows us also to explore these dark corners of the human soul through many different ways so so I think that's to me Is that
3: a way of being honest as well? Like when you say the dark corners of the human soul Carlos, do you mean that this 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 way of writing this charged atmosphere allows you to find at the core of what's the most the truth of what's being human I think, I or, think, or is that not important? I think it's very important. Story. I think
4: it's very important that that when you're trying to the most important elements in the literature of any kind is it's in the characters. We that's what we remember about fiction great characters and what's inside of them. And when you're creating characters and sometimes characters can be human but sometimes characters are a place or or a time or an object, but these this these things, I think what what it allows us is, is, is to really explore them to the to the deepest extent, and and to find many elements and those things that maybe in a different genre could be harder to reach, and and I think that's basically is is bringing the wider the widest possible palette. To your colors, to the colors you're using, and that also uh, allows you to the widest palette to, to paint the shadows and the darkness, in the human heart, and also the good things in human nature. And I think this this is a very interesting thing for for a writer, for somebody who makes up stories about people, about the classic themes of literature. About the, well, the, you have per- classic
3: themes like dealing with love in, in yeah, both love of these novels, love like love
4: and jealousy and, and, and passion that's and not able to be passion. realized. Yeah, even. and man, many of these yeah. things that are part of human life. Are the are part of our everyday experience. And these are the classic themes of literature. Traditionally, this is what literature has been dealing with, which is essentially human nature, our emotions, our goals, our desires, our fears, the things we do, why we become the people we become, why we fear some things, why we behave, the way we believe in certain things. All these things that literature is trying to explore and, and make drama of, I think this is what also what I'm trying to do. I'm not inventing anything new. I'm just trying to continue with what I think are the greatest themes in literature but I try to do right. it through this through this approach trying to use all these elements from we could solve the engine engineering of storytelling that allows us to stylize to use many symbolic elements to use many metaphorical elements and to create a, a dense atmosphere that somehow traps you and seduces you and and pulls you inside the story
3: when you're writing then is it in in one of the numerous working drafts that you mentioned earlier that you're going back and and working this into it you're thinking well well, we have we have a night here, but we don't need just a night. We need a storm in the night. Or is that is that what you're doing yeah, like in future drafts? Ev- ev- like you're ev- just going back?
4: Everything and, when I'm when I'm writing every single detail, I am very aware of it and I'm trying to, to use it to, to provide it with some kind of purpose, dramatic purpose right? in the story. But
3: when does it get into the drafts, Carlos? That's what I'm it, wondering. Like as because you 'cause you're saying that it gets from there, the beginning, I mm-hmm. think yes. because okay. the
4: intention of it is from the beginning. But then is how exactly you fine-tune that how you achieve it or how you push it to the point where you think, well, this is as as, as far as I can get well, it Is this it is, ever too much? I think you ever, I think you, you have to you have to know exactly what you're trying to achieve I think one of the things is that you're trying to achieve something you're trying to communicate something you're trying to inspire certain emotions, certain reactions in the reader. so you have to know exactly, what what things to use and what things not to use, and I think at some point you have to be the judge of is this doing what it's supposed to do, and at that point that's when you leave it there. It's uh, it's it's or and trust it, and I, you have to trust it. And you have to trust yourself and to the best of your ability. I think that of course you have limitations, and writing is always a struggle against your own limitations, against the limits of your skill, your craft, your talent. But at some point you have to know when. when things cannot be made any better by you. Not that they cannot be made made any better, but you don't know how to make them any better. To you, this is as far as you can take it. That's the point where you have to stop. You say, this is it. And, and, and then move on and then work on new things and then continue continue building the, the whole thing. But I think that's the point. You cannot mess with something forever because then you have lost your objectivity, your point of view. You're just making changes because you don't know where you're going. You have to know where you're going. You have to know what you're trying to achieve. And when you feel that you cannot get any closer to your goal, that that's where as far as your talent lets you go, that's when you should stop and say, okay, this is as far as I can get it.
3: And, and how do you, so, and so you have to trust then that moment and with the, the writing, but, but then how do you pick a translator? Cause you've worked with, um, uh, Lucia Graves for, uh, both, both books, both novels. Um, but, but you're, why didn't you choose to translate the book yourself? Or is it too much um, you want to be writing and creating rather than well, there, going there, back there and rewriting reas- a book? There are
4: many reasons for that. One is that I don't want to write the same book twice. You're already written that book. So I don't necessarily want to write it again. And I think that because I've been extremely fortunate to be able to work with Lucia, which is very talented. Lucia is not, necess- is not really a translator herself. She has translated sometimes the work of her father, Robert Grapes. But she's a novelist in her own right. And uh, she just happened to read, years ago, Shadow of the Wind, when it came out in Spain on the very first week of publication. And she contacted my agent and said, I want to translate this book. And I was uh,
3: wondering how the relationship came uh, about. This is
4: how it started. And at the time, we didn't even have an offer from a pu- an English-speaking publisher. So... Um that was the thing. And later on, when there was offers and we started talking about translation, a number of preeminent translators from Spanish into English submitted a sample chapter to more or less give an idea what would be their work. And I remember that none of them were working. They were terrible. And I suggested let's go back to Lucia because I think she she could do a much better work. And then Lucia submitted a chapter that wasn't really working yet, but but she knew it. She was aware of it, and 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 I think she knew that it could be made much better. So I suggested let's work in a different way. Lucia can start working on a first draft, and she can consult with me as much as she wants while she's working. And after a while, she sends me some of the stuff, and I start reworking it and rewriting it. So we go we keep going back and forth, this kind of loop thing. And as we were advancing in the translation, Lucia started seeing a lot of the things I was trying to achieve and she could get in very fast because she's very smart and very talented. So the more we advanced, the less necessary it was for me to make changes or to rewrite sections because she already knew how to nail them exactly. And I think that the until we got to the point where we felt, you know, this doesn't read like a translation, which is what a good translation is. Sometimes people are think, and it's very common in, in English English language readers they feel that translators rewrite the books or that they change them or sometimes people ask me questions I see these people are convinced that translators are recreating the books and that's not the case. a good trans the great tragedy of the translators work is when it's done right, it's invisible. It's exactly the same thing. And it's only when it doesn't work that you start feeling that getting that sense of a clunkiness or kind of a square. In there, yeah, or like a, a square wheel going like clock, 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 <laughs> and you say, Oh my god, there's something not working here. I don't know what it is, but it feels odd. That is when the translation is not good. But a good translation, you forget that you're reading something that originated in a different language because you know, it's exactly the... It's working. It, it's it. It's Is that working. it? It's not a recreation. It's not a rewrite. It's the original. You have to the original.
3: Let's take a short break. You're listening to Carlos Ruiz Zafon, uh, his novel, The Angel's Game, on living writers. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. If you're just joining us, you've got living writers and today Carlos Ruiz Zafon is here um, we've been talking a lot about both your books uh, and it's kind of interesting. I guess they, uh, has that been the phenomena, Carlos? Because one, um, the Angels game, even though it was, um, it's the latest um, public, That's what the book you're on yeah. tour for, uh-huh. it's the prequel. It, it becomes, it comes earlier in time in,
4: than well, the... Well, it's not necessarily a prequel. Sometimes people ask me, well, what is the Angels game? It, it's a prequel, it's a sequel. I say, well, it's all of the above and none of the above. It's actually, it's, it's a standalone story. The thing is that when I was starting working on Shadow of the Wind, I came with this notion of creating four stories that would be interdependent but also independent, that could be completely standalone but that would. Share a universe. Share some characters. Share some elements. Of and that this is books. the world. This fantastic gothic dream work of the fin- of the Cemetery of Forgotten Books. That's which a is,
3: wonderful idea. Which
4: is which is this fantastic library hidden, a secret library hidden in a palace in the old town of Barcelona that is protected by a secret society of people who make sure that books don't disappear, that are not destroyed, that they try to preserve them forever. So this is the heart of these four stories. But in many ways, my idea was to create for books that could act as some kind of labyrinth of a story it's a Chinese books of fictions that you could enter in four different ways that you could explore